Hello, welcome to the Musics in Japan. A conversational podcast about daily life for an American couple living long-term in Japan. So lately I've been thinking about the PhD process. You are Dr. Music and you have been for some time. And I'm in the process of becoming Dr. Music. Yes. So you got your PhD a few years back from a Japanese university. Low these many years ago. (laughs) And so... I kind of want to start with talking about the decision to get a PhD, Mm -hmm. because I feel like you and I had very different reasons for wanting a PhD. Okay. So what was your reason? Why did you want a PhD? Um, To shut everybody up. (laughs) What do you mean by that? No, I think a lot of it was just the expectation of myself that I should have one. Because when I was younger and worked in tech, most of the people that I worked with had a PhD. So I just kind of viewed that as the marker of you're you're fully educated. And that was even though I didn't even have a a bachelor's degree at the time and felt like I was doing equal work. So like there's a little bit of elitism in that. So... Did you think you should get a PhD before you started working in tech, like when you were in Alaska, or was it after coming to California? After coming to California. Because I find that for me, at least, in where I was at, it really felt, I feel like California is a PhD, has a PhD culture. Yeah, it does. And that's kind of like, if you're educated, I feel like the culture, at least in the Silicon Valley, right, is that... No education under a PhD is really respected or mm-hmm. really treated as if it has value because they're not like a bachelor's is just what you're supposed to do. Right. That's like the entry level to play in, in anything. I was really fortunate that for me, working with children, that that wasn't the entry level. You don't actually need a degree in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, in California, rather. I don't want to speak for the whole United States. It's different from state to state and sometimes different from county to county in each state. But in Santa Clara County, gosh, over 20 years ago, like 25 years ago, it wasn't necessary to have anything other than um, or 12 early education credits to work with children. Yeah, your early childhood education. Yeah, early childhood education. And then for the work that I did going from that, I did early childhood education, early childhood development. And so I got all of the development education stuff. And then I kind of tapped out of the education process because I needed to work and make money. Mm -hmm. And I got a job. And that job trained me. And I had on-the-job training. Um, they trained in screening, which was low-level differential diagnosis because we would screen children for autism and screen children for ADHD and screen and work with, not screen, but work with children that had Downs, mm-hmm. Down syndrome. And I got my entry into therapy and working with children that way and so i for many many years i didn't have like the official education that people internationally expected right and that's what kind of set me on my journey to get my bachelor's and my master's and and all of that was so that people could understand me internationally yes and for me i think that's why i started doing formal education too is i had all of this knowledge but it 
it was very much within Silicon Valley and I wanted to be more competitive in the workplace as far as landing the kind of jobs that I wanted and being able to do the kind of thing I found interesting. You know, a lot of times if we look at the economy as a whole, when the economy gets bad, people go back to school. Yeah. And it's not necessarily just to avoid being in a bad economy, but it's also to strengthen your own qualifications. That's a whole other thing, but I felt like Silicon Valley really taught me, which is maybe not a true lesson, but that if you don't have a terminal degree, then what you have achieved can be taken from you at any time. What do you mean by terminal degree? A degree that kills you. <laughs> and that would be a PhD for sure. Yes. Man, my PhD is killing me some days. It differs by field. Like, you know, most lawyers have just a JD. Mm-hmm. And even though in the U.S. that's called What's a, a JD? It's called Juris Doctorate. Okay. But the What's US, a Juris Doctorate? Doctor of Law. <laughs> completely lost the plot there for a minute like what are you on about why are you talking about lawyers right now well because it's not actually a doctorate i mean the u.s calls it a doctorate but no no other place does. i don't know anybody that calls that a doctorate because it's not and in fact the american bar association <laughs> says if you don't have a doctorate in somebody else it's unethical to call yourself a doctorate just because the words jd but if you have a JD, nobody expects you to go get more education. Uh, okay. So you're listing JD as being on par with a PhD and an MD. As, f- as far as career advancement, correct. Okay. So, but for me with terminal degree, I think it varies so much from field to field. It does. And, and that's why that's, I'm not trying to do all that. This podcast, I'm trying to talk about our PhDs, your PhD and my PhD. This is not trying to like educate everybody on education. Okay. So in my PhD, the PH is for fabulous. <laughs> so no, like why did you get your PhD? I found the subject really interesting. Um, I wanted. What is your subject? Math. I don't think so. Let fill everybody in. Like, what do you have your PhD in? What did you do your dissertation on? What motivated you? I so, guess I need to be a better interviewer. Okay, so my PhD is in Suri Kagaku, which is the official translation is mathematical science. Mm-hmm. So, in other universities, if I'd done exactly the same thing, it would have been in mathematics. Mm-hmm. So this is just a quirk of Nagoya University where I went. And basically, I studied topology, which is shapes. Mm-hmm. And I have my master's in computational mathematics. Mm-hmm. So I studied differential equations and statistics and all of that, which is very applied. So between the two, I have a lot of applied and a lot of unapplied mathematics. And so I never felt like... and. Even when you decided to get your PhD, I never felt like it created any career opportunities for you. Well, and when they study it, they find that PhDs don't basically are not worth it. When they when they look at the difference in the career earnings gap between a bachelor's and a master's, they say yes, absolutely, a master's is worth it. When they look at the career earnings gap on average between a master's and a PhD. PhDs make less over their lifetime than people with a master's because of the years they give up pursuing that PhD. And so 
for me, I felt like you needed your PhD to heal some to heal the core pain of not being supported in your education when you were younger. Because you graduated high school two years early, but then you didn't have the funding to go to college. Right. And I think for me that in you created core pain is what I felt. And I felt like putting all the resources into you getting a PhD is so that you could feel loved, supported, and cherished by me. That's why I supported your PhD. And I did feel all of those things. So what did you get out of it? Because I got out of it like forever having good wife cred. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the OG of good wives now. (laughs) I got out of it the chance to just devote myself completely to the study of one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that the program worked where I went to school at Nagoya University, the PhD in mathematics specifically doesn't require any additional courses because you're required to already have a master's and to demonstrate before you're admitted your competence in all areas of mathematics. So I had a long oral exam before I was admitted as a PhD student. And so I had you know, a couple of years to just explore something that I really love and still love and then get certified in a way as an expert in this. So I think that's so interesting, like our two different approaches, because I have avoided everything I love, like the plague Mm -hmm. during my PhD, (laughs) because I feel like I'm going to hate whatever. I feel like if I studied something that I loved, like was truly incensed and passionate about, that I would be angry and hurt and devastated when my chair has to come in and give me corrections or when the discipline demands something that I don't agree with. Right. So for my PhD, I'm studying cultural intelligence Mm -hmm. and that's the ability to function in cultures other than your own is like a simple way to put it. Right. To be effective uh, cross-culturally. So for me, I find that interesting. I've always found culture to be interesting and the study of culture, but I'm not passionate about it in any way. Mm -hmm. And so I find that when they're like, what about this or what about that? I'm like, okay, I'll include it. I really don't care. I just want to have a finished PhD. And throughout my program, that's what the program I'm in, because I'm going to Walden and Walden really beats into that the best PhD is a finished PhD. Right. And they require that you do residencies and they require that you take two years of coursework no matter what you've done because I earned my master's from Walden. Even if I had continued on straight from the master's to the PhD, I still would have had to do two years of additional um, coursework. So there's no way to complete a Walden PhD in under four and a half years. And that's if you're fast tracking. You know, I found it really interesting how much more difficult it was for me to go to school online than in person. Mm-hmm. Because I did my master's through Texas A&M online. And it was a much lonelier and more difficult experience. Mm-hmm. And doing the PhD in person, I think I didn't have the same experience that you're having because there was always somebody to kind of talk over things with. But I have someone to talk over things with. I have you. Yeah, but I'm not in your program. 
I don't really value talking to people in my program about the program because I find that every time I talk with other students, and this might just be the students that I'm missing, that I'm missing, that I'm meeting rather, they don't really want to talk with me. They want to talk at me. Mm. And I think it's because most of them don't have you. Well, none of them have you. None of them have me, correct. And I feel like it's the one chance that they get to talk to somebody who understands the program and who understands what they're doing. And so they never really listen. Like even people are like, hey, because I take a lot of auxiliary classes as well. And I had the experience of a classmate saying, hey, oh, you're taking this auxiliary class. Let me take it with you and we'll be buddies for it. And then when it came time to do it, they were like, yeah, I don't want to take that class. And I was like, right on. So even when they're trying to to partner with me, I've just, I haven't had the experience of anyone partnering with me. And there is somebody in Japan, like 30 minutes away from us, same chair as me, in the same program as me, and we don't communicate. I sent them an email and they're off doing their own thing and they're busy and I'm off doing my thing. So I find it's like those two lanes. Either the person already has so much support that they don't need my support, mm-hmm. Or they have no support and want my support without it being reciprocal. And I think this varies a lot by field, too. Because in mathematics, everybody kind of knows what everybody else is working on. So it's it's difficult to steal somebody else's idea, for one thing, because everybody would know you did it. And for another, it's much less subjective. So nobody's trying to steal my ideas. Like the one cool thing I, that I love about Walden is once you go through um, the your initial defense for your proposal, you can't your idea can't be stolen. It's so documented. Right. So every that's the one great thing that I really really love about Walden is the documentation of the process. So it would be really really hard for someone to steal my idea. But I think that's the other part that I was saying is that it's so much more not subjective, but probabilistic than mathematics is. So if you do a qualitative dissertation, which you're doing quantitative, then it's entirely down to how the people evaluating it feel about whether you've done it right. That's not true. There are established ways to do it, but there's no, nobody can come in and say with 100% certainty, yes or no on it. Yeah. There's a lot of subjectivity in the assessment of it. And that's true for quant to a certain extent as well. And that's that's why I was saying it's true for quant to a probabilistic extent. You can yeah. say, you know, what percentage likely it is. Yeah. That you're right. And and don't write to us about p values. I can explain the whole thing, but <laughs> well, I know it's not actually well, What does this have to do with why we want our PhDs? You're like in a weird headspace today. Like it's so confused. You're confusing me. You're confusing I wanted me. a PhD so that I could geek out about this kind of stuff. For other <laughs> and have people accept that you can geek out about it. Yes. So that you can be in a thirst. You can have the gravitas to like geek out whenever you want. Yes. How's that working out for you? It works out pretty well for me, actually. Okay. So one of the, my favorite times of having a PhD. So was that I went to a presentation for the ACCJ, the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan, on sales. And the presenter said, oh, I'm doctor, and then introduced himself. 
in just like a very just kind of pompous, obnoxious way. Mm-hmm. And so the person running the thing made a point to say, oh, okay, let me introduce you to the people here. Here's Dr. Music. Here's Dr. H. Here's Dr. <laughs> C. Because there's a lot of us foreigners here in Japan with PhDs. Yeah. Yeah. And especially at with the ACCJ in particular. Right. It's a really well-educated bunch. Right. So a lot of people here have a PhD but don't work in their field. Yeah. You know, the thing I found interesting about getting a PhD in Japan was the work culture around it. So when I started applying for jobs, I found that if I wanted to work for an entirely Japanese company, they have a system where you just go to work for the company and not because of your skills. Yeah. So if I wanted to specify that I would work in mathematics, I had to give up pay. Yes. Even though I have a PhD in mathematical science. Yes. So that I thought was bizarre. And I ended up working for a a legally Japanese company that was not run entirely by Japanese people. Yeah. So I would definitely do it again if I had to choice the choice knowing what I know now. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would set it as a goal back when I decided at like 21 that I wanted a PhD. Mm-hmm. If I knew what I would end no, up No, and you at. want a PhD from a foreign university, from yes. a non-American university. Absolutely, yes. That's what I decided was going to be the marker of it. And two, I think part of it was, um, you know, just being the best in my family. Mm. <laughs> Not you and me and our son, but <laughs> my, my siblings. Yes. <laughs> You are the best one. <laughs> it's, it, it's a little petty, maybe, but it drove me to finish a PhD, which I think is a great thing. But which of your siblings has a master's? I'm not sure that any of my siblings even have a bachelor's. Right. So that's so bizarre to me. That you're like, I need a PhD. Because financially, you're more successful than all your siblings. And just at the bachelor's level, you're educationally more successful. If we're defining it by accolades. Yes than your siblings and your patents yes like you have patents publications degrees up the wazoo certifications up the wazoo like i enjoy education now i didn't i feel like i got a late start on it i had a really rough high school Uh, my mom died when i was in high school and it was just i graduated like 100 something out of 140 in my class and i didn't really kind of get into school until like in terms of just really it clicking for me until I met you. I'm not saying you were the catalyst, just no, that no, we met in college. So yeah, just the, <laughs> you were in college before you met me. Just that it clicked that, oh, this is what people were saying all along. Because my father was very much, and he would use these same words that is all just jumping through hoops and not letting the bastards grind you down. That was his education, <laughs> educational philosophy. And that kind of feels like the PhD process, jumping through hoops and not letting the bastards grind you down. <laughs> but I have like the most amazing chair on the planet. And my co-chair, they are so amazing. They are just like a wet dream for me. We are so perfectly suited for each other. Mm-hmm. They leave me the heck alone. 
<laughs> and I love it. I don't need a lot of direction. And when I write, they give me clear criticisms on what it is they want me to change. They highlight it, underline it, and are very specific. And until I change that, it will not be approved. Like whatever it is I'm working on, it will not be approved. And so the premise writing process was really super straightforward for me. The prospectus really super straightforward for me. I'm still in the proposal writing process, but super, super straightforward. It was like, hey, I think I want to start with method on my proposal. No, you don't. You want to start with your literature review. Very succinct, <laughs> very succinct and straightforward. And I don't know what I was thinking because I hadn't finished my literature review. And so you, like that, when I just get excited and I want to run ahead and chase rabbits, she's like, you can chase those rabbits, but no, after you're done chasing them, you're still going to have to do this thing I said. Well, I think you might've been thinking about like all the presentations you've heard me rehearsing where I say, write your methods first. Well, not just that. And at the residency, Walden said, write your methods first. Mm, okay. Yeah. And for the to get from prospectus to proposal, you have to know your methods. Yes. And so I have like and I'm doing a lot of uh, additional courses focused on methods. So right now, my life is very focused on method while I'm doing still in my literature review. Right. Um, and I'm like, I like doing I like having simultaneous streams of thought. Because mm -hmm. if I'm focusing on just one thing, I feel like, okay, well, when I turn this one thing in, I'm not going to be ready to start working on the next thing. You want to have irons in the fire. Yeah, always. Because there is a two-week period where my chair and co-chair have for review. Mm -hmm. And so that two weeks, the way the program is designed and my pacing, I can't afford to spend two weeks doing nothing. Yeah. That's going to lead to, you know, me maxing out running out the clock on, on the PhD process, I'm trying to get it done as quickly as possible. So I'm really fortunate in that I have excellent research chops and I'm really good writer. So writing and turning around feedback surprises my chair. I'm so quick. <laughs> and because I work for myself that on days that I know I'm going to need to write, I will book those days off. I right. will sacrifice money for progress. And that's how I look at it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always jiggling and joggling <laughs> my schedule. There's like a few days that are fixed with the rest of the days I leave open for me to have flexibility. And then because in addition to doing my PhD and working as a therapist full time, we're also doing the podcast and we have social media and we're parents. So yes. I learned from watching your your process of doing it in two years doing your PhD in two years, you were at breakneck speed go the entire time. Yes, it was. And it was such a serious grind and you leaned in and you didn't have time for friends or family or anything other than PhD. And it was so miserable for you. Like even when you traveled, you really didn't get to enjoy it. And you were doing some amazing things during your PhD. You went to several really really prestigious conferences and you had you were involved in several really prestigious think tanks yeah but i think I, I don't feel like you got to like luxuriate in any of that i mean i've had some time to unwind it because i got my phd in 2012 and yeah i did a lot of fun stuff you know i i went to I think four different countries to speak and i got to take a train across europe and and um you know just um i spoke virtually in russia and 
it was a lot of fun, but it was just really intense. So I don't think that I got to enjoy it at the time. But my memory is good enough on these things. I can enjoy it retrospectively. (laughs) But I felt like it was really a privilege to be able to go and get a PhD. And so one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping people that it's not necessarily historically easy for them to get a PhD to, to work through that program. So for me, in getting a PhD, my process was a little bit different than yours in that I never wanted one until I did. Mm -hmm. So I was like defiant and belligerent for, I want to say about 15 years of you telling me that you thought it'd be cool if I got a PhD. You're saying, fuck that. I'm not, no, no, Chad, (laughs) no. I will never, ever, ever have my PhD. Not ever, never, ever, never. And you say 10 years of never. And it was 10 years of never. Yeah, I did. 10 years of never, ever. And then when I was in my master's and because I was doing my master's at the time that you were doing your PhD and your chair at the time had mentioned us going to Europe and for your post for postdoc and when we were toying with that I thought "Mm, I would totally dig having my PhD if I could get my PhD in Austria and that's because of the history of the discipline right because the history of psychology and linguistics and all of that and I really loved that but then I was like nah and nope I don't because I started adjustment. I already had adjustment guidance. I had already started working in the field, then having it and having it fully realized. I feel like I don't need a PhD to do anything I want to do. Right. So after seeing what you went through to get it, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah, because a terminal degree for practice here in Japan is a master's. Yeah, for the government to certify you. Right. And so now I'm like a member of the Japanese Psychological Association and the ward offices refer to me and I can testify in court and all of that because I have a decade of experience and a master's. Right. So I am like at the height of where I can be. Like the Japanese government does not value PhD. So given all that, what made you decide to do the PhD? I really just felt unfinished. Mm Mm-hmm. I felt like I have the knowledge that a PhD would represent. And why don't I just do this last step? Because the only thing in between me and doing it is putting the time in. Right. So why not put the time in and get this really cool thing that allows me more flexibility? Because I also, I've been thinking about now that we have permanent residency and when we're going for it, what does that mean for the rest of the world? Like... Would I ever want to do the talk circuit, like mm-hmm. the conference circuit? And would I ever want to do consulting? Like, I don't know that I'm always going to be a therapist. That's and, a good point. Yeah. And so anything beyond therapy for me requires a PhD. And so I don't know. Right now I'm really enjoying being a therapist, but I feel like being a woman of a certain age that the clock is 
is kind of running out for me in terms of getting the PhD and then having enough years on the PhD that I will still have enough vitality on the other side of that to do a career change if I choose. Right. So I just want it for the flexibility and the options that it provides me. Um, the gravitas doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love gravitas. And also, it just feels like a nice cherry on top of the cake. You know, yeah, like it's the I, icing I, on the cake for me. I know exactly what you mean. And also something that I hadn't thought about before that I am really feeling now, it's a celebration for how stable my life is. Mm-hmm. Because when I was doing my undergraduate work before you and I were married, I used to keep a stack of uh, books because um, at Dianza University, shout out Dianza, love Dianza, the most amazing uh, college, one of the most amazing colleges in the world to me. The professors would put old textbooks out in the hallway, and I would just go and scoop them up. They were for free. Right. And then I would leave them in my apartment so that people could break into my apartment and steal my textbooks without impacting my ability to do my schoolwork. And so... <laughs> It was hard out here for a pimp for a long time. And I guess that doesn't sound very much like I'm in the pimp lane. But with the stalkers and the person that I was partnered with at the time, nobody really wanted me to get an education. Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted me to, to stay small and, and stay where I was. And they felt like education was going to make me blow up and move in directions that they couldn't come with. And so they were wanting me to stay in the same lane that they were in and not better myself. So education for me was always really fraught and really difficult. And then when I did my master's, at the time that I did my master's, Rasta was also in college and you were doing a PhD and we were in Japan and we were trying to... Yes, all three of us were in in tertiary education. Yeah, and trying to figure out how do we get from where we were to permanent residency. Yes. It was really, really fraught and really, really difficult. And I didn't have enough income and money of my own to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like if I have, because with you paying for my master's, there was like a huge amount of pressure that came with you paying for it. Just a huge amount of pressure. And I know when I was supporting us during your PhD, there was a huge amount of pressure for you. Right. Because I think I finished my master's before. You did. Your PhD. So I misspoke when I said I was doing it at the same time. You were in a master's program. I was in a master's program. And Rasta was in a bachelor's program. No, we had we had overlap. And I think we had slight overlap. Not much. Not much. Maybe like a month or two. Yeah. Because I went to work like really early on. Yeah. And I saw how much stress and pressure upon you to finish early. Mm-hmm. And give me some financial relief that I knew I didn't want that. If I was going to do a PhD, right, I wanted to be able to to really foot the bill. And now our financial situation is so good that you're not doing a traditional job, and I'm able to do my PhD and work. So I just feel like this is the best situation for me because when I get burnt out of being a therapist, I can just be a PhD student. Mm-hmm. When I'm burnt out of being a PhD student, I can just be a therapist. I can switch those those lanes and i really enjoy that work and sleep sometimes (laughs) 
So, because I also saw that during your PhD, when you were just a PhD student, that just was made it so more amplified and so much more fraught. And I see that in my clients too, that are just PhD students that aren't doing anything else versus clients who are working and earning their PhD. They are so much more centered. Yeah, it's and, interesting. It's, and it's an odd thing because I had a job while I was a PhD student. I was also a teaching assistant. Yeah. So that you were a teaching assistant at the university you were getting your PhD from. Yeah, which is the case for most people who are teaching assistants is that they are TA. Yeah, the people I work with have like job jobs. Right, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> that is so shady. I just said jobs jobs. Oh my goodness. Shout out to all the teaching assistants. That's a real job job. I'm saying jobs not affiliated with the university they attend. Yes. Got to clean that up. Yes. Okay, so you're saying that that was the case for most people? I was waiting for an awkward pause, so it seemed like we'd edited that out. <laughs> we do not edit these. By <laughs> now they know we are not spending any time on editing. We just blow right past it. You get it just raw and nasty here, raw and nasty. Yeah, that was my nickname in high school. <laughs> That is so gross because I know how old you were in high school. You're like nine when you entered high school. I was 12 when I entered high school, not nine. <laughs> 12, little 12-year-old Ron Nasty cruising down the hall. Hey, sexy. All four foot eight of me. <laughs> that is too much. Oh, my gosh. That's too much. So I was saying that, that I was you know working on my PhD, but I was also doing TA stuff. Yes. So the, the not tits and ass teaching right, assistant. Teaching assistant. So the just a student part is a misnomer for most PhD students. Yeah, it is. It is. So now being on the other side of having your PhD, I feel like when you first got it, you were really, really unfulfilled and angsty. Mm-hmm. And now you seem like you've settled into it, and you're more like luxuriating in it. What? How'd that shift happen? Why were you angsty, first of all? I never really understood that. I think that I just felt like I didn't have any way to show who I was. And I was in tech before. And when you're in tech, you really have to stay in it because Mm -hmm. it changes so fast. Because it what? Changes so fast. There's always new tools to learn. There's always new ways of doing things. Yes, so true. And I still enjoy reading about it. Like, I read a lot about artificial intelligence and that kind of thing. But I've always, even when I was working full time, because my memory can be problematic, I've always been somebody who uses references a lot. Mm. So I don't believe in closed book tests. I mean, I know they exist, but I think they're <laughs> a poor way to assess things because yeah. that's not how professionals work. Professionals use all the resources they need to to accomplish whatever they're they're doing yeah but i felt like i didn't have anything to show for having developed expertise so i felt really angsty about how will people know like how to treat me with respect and phd that's how they'll know yeah but right after that though you felt really angsty like you didn't feel like that phd was enough yeah so i think that it, you know, it wasn't a good approach. I think it was saying that if I get a PhD, then I'm going to feel like people respect me and then I'm going to be happy. Mm. For most people, it's not ever going to work. Yeah. 
So then that really it's caused... like getting a boob job to feel beautiful. Yeah. For some people, getting a boob job works, and for other people, it just starts them down a slippery slope. Yeah, like, I feel like if I got one, it would just, like, never be quite right. <laughs> so I feel like after I graduated and I still wasn't feeling settled in that way, it caused a period of self-reflection. But now I'm content with it. Um, so now I feel like I've shifted over to, I would rather people call me Chad than Dr. Music. Mm. You've never wanted people to call you Dr. Music. You don't like Mr. Music. You like Dr. Music if they're going to say it because that's just the rule. That is the rule, yes. So it's not an ego thing. It's just like if you have a PhD, it should be doctor rather than Mr. Right. Unless people insist I call them Mr. or Doctor or whatever, then I'm like petty enough to say, oh, I need to call you Mr. This. You can call me Dr. Music. <laughs> I don't think that's petty. I think if people are, are saying, okay, we're going to, we have a, the social contract is I'm going to closely define how you address me and my first name is not okay, then if we're using last names, it's Dr. Music. Yeah, you know, I know I'm in my 40s and all of that, but sometimes I still feel like I'm younger than everybody else. It's you are younger than everybody else. All of our friends are late 40s, early 50s, some yeah, in their 60s. But, but now a lot of the people that I am in the ACCJ with and other things are in their in their 30s, and some are even in their 20s. So That's rare, because they're so thirsty for 20-somethings right now. Yeah, 20 is rare, but 30s is not rare anymore. So I feel like the older I get, the more ridiculous it gets that I still think of myself as the youngest person, youngest person in the room. Okay, yeah, no. And looking at you, that would be ridiculous because you're bald with a gray beard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> so, and you, so I want to explain something about boob jobs. Okay. Because I don't want anybody to be hurt that has a boob job. I'm not anti-boob job. I say I don't care. You get there. Get there if you can. But I work with a lot of women who got boob jobs for the wrong reason mm -hmm. they got boob jobs thinking that it would fill a hole in them if they changed the outside mm -hmm. and i find that change has to come from the inside out like if you love yourself but there's this one thing about you that you'd like to fix that's a very different thing than thinking if i fix this one thing i will love myself it's a directional thing and that's what i was saying about i i have thought that if i fix my education if I take what felt like it was snatched away from me by my mother's death, by being homeless as a teen, by a lot of different things, then I will feel like my life is good, I'm stable, I, everything that I lost has been restored. And I didn't. So then what did that for you? Because now you're in such like a good place, you're so centered, and I'm not seeing any of that core pain like bleeding through our lives. It feels like you got healing on board for that. What I think, did it for you? I think helping other people hmm. and specifically helping professors and PhD students and seeing that they all had those same insecurities too. Hmm. And being autistic, I, I just assume that everybody else feels differently than I do. Hmm. But I could hear from them that no, they didn't. It, this is kind of how everybody feels about education with rare exception and i was like oh okay so there's never a grand moment where you feel like aha i have done it i have completed the, the learning i have mm. learned all the knowledge yeah so then for you your phd was about goal attainment and hoping 
to heal core pain. Yes. And for me, my PhD is a celebration that my life is stable enough and good enough now that I could do this really, really hard thing because on any given day, I can tell the whole world to shh. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've never had before now where Mm -hmm. I could say, okay, everybody just freeze. Nobody need anything from me today. Nobody talked to me today. Nobody, nothing. Because even in my practice, I can tell clients I will not have access to electronics and I can go on a writing retreat and not communicate with any clients and because i seriously will unplug well and you're not an on-demand therapist yeah no i'm not so you don't take walk-ins no. and you give people a hotline if they have needs in the middle of the night or whatever so yeah because oh had to switch my leg because for me if you're in crisis you cannot call me and get me to answer my phone it's hit and miss so right. i don't answer my phone in between clients and i usually don't answer my phone on my days off and you certainly don't answer your phone during sessions oh absolutely not so <laughs> if i'm in a car driving to and from someplace i may answer my phone mm-hmm. so it's really really super rare most times i call back so email is the fastest way to reach me and i like that not distance and everybody knowing that if they send me an email, it can take to up to 24 hours to respond. Right. So I really did before entering the PhD program, I was able to clear the field and having witnessed you go through the program. I feel very lucky that you went before I did because I'm just avoiding some of the mistakes that you made and I'm able to benefit from adapting what you did to me mm-hmm. and crafting it so that it suits me and it, it fits my personality. So for me, having a, a PhD, what that will tell the world about me is that I had a certain amount of money because everybody knows how much PhDs cost. Right. Um, and that I had consistency. Yeah. That I was able to create consistency in my life. Not everybody who has a PhD had consistency and not everybody who had a PhD had a certain amount of money. Some people, you know, did loans or what have you. But it says that you could get a loan, that you had access to the money. And it says that you could have enough consistency that you were able to present an idea, do what was what was ever necessary to bring that idea to fruition and then defend it. Right. And have people say, yep, you did it. And I guess I think the last thing for me before I finish is I feel like part of the reason that I wanted a PhD so much and pursued it so vigorously was that it became clear to me that being disabled meant that I wouldn't be able to sustain a career Mm. in something that required constant attention. Yeah. So I don't have any scorn or or look down on people who don't have a degree but i knew that the the best shot i had at being able to make a stable living despite being disabled or i should say while being disabled was to have the phd and the point i want to make about my phd i dropped out of high school um i earned my uh, ged and it took me until i was in my 50s this has been a life long journey for me of living and learning and the first time I went around for my bachelor's it just didn't work out a bunch of shady stuff happened in my life and didn't work out the second time around I feel like I got so the first time around I got a scholarship from who's who among American students Mm -hmm. 
And I just, I didn't have the maturity to mm-hmm. bear that out. The second time, my mother was actually paying me to go to school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the maturity to value going to school over partying. And so I hung out with friends and partied. The third time I went, I was just trying to get to that place where I had enough education on board to get a decent job and change my career path. And then the time after that, um, I met you and we joked, but you fucked away all my hopes, dreams, and ambitions. <laughs> the sex was good. The sex was intense. And I valued sex over going to class. And then the time after that, so like there. Yeah, we took a hiatus. We, we met in college. We, yeah, we got then, married. Took we, we met in college, got married, took a hiatus, and then went back and finished. Yes, I don't know. I've tried to get my bachelor's like seven or eight times before I did it. Mm-hmm. But then I did it because I kept going back. And to me, that's the coolest thing about being an American is that I was um, in school with people in their 80s. Yeah, so going is, to so get is their I. Bachelor's. And so I feel like you, you don't age out of it. If you want education, figure out how to do it for yourself. And even if you have to do it in increments where you have to go make a bunch of money and then take a couple classes, make a bunch of money and take a couple classes, you can get there. Don't let anybody tell you because you're in the foster system foster system you can't do it don't let anybody tell you because you're a woman you can't do it don't let anybody tell you because you're queer you can't do it don't let anybody tell you because you're a woman you can't do it that has nothing to do with you they're the ways that they try to limit you or you're disabled and you can't do it yeah the way i see it like i know the stats is that something only something like three percent of kids who were in the foster system end up with at least a bachelor's degree yeah but i think you didn't beat the odds you made the odds Thank you. Because the people who are the 97%, they didn't lose the odds. No. I think this whole idea of beating the odds is kind of... Antiquated. Yeah. So I think wherever you're at in life, if you want to do better, then... Do better. Yeah. Figure it out. It can be tough to find the resources. So I don't fault anybody for not doing better. But... We were lucky enough. Go to, down to your local community college and go down to the financial aid office and tell them, hey, where can I get some money? Yeah. Like, seriously, it's, it's that simple. Just go down, talk to a financial aid officer, and it's that's their whole job is to tell people how to get money. Most people in the foster care system um, qualify for the Pell Grant mm-hmm. and other subsidies and grants, and you can get paid to go to school. So that's my little PSA, my little rant. I saved it till the end. Yeah. I didn't make the whole thing about it, but, you know, I'll climb down off my soapbox now. But wherever you are and whoever you are, you know, get there if you can, if education's what you want. Don't let other don't let other people's lack of creativity stop you from pursuing your goals. Good way to put it. Yeah. And that's us for today. Thanks for listening and we hope you listen again. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. You can keep the conversation going on our website at themusicsinjapan.com. That's the music spelled M-U-S-I-C-K-S. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at the Musics on both. And if you'd like to support us, please visit our website to sign up for our newsletter, join a Patreon tier, or send us a one-time donation through PayPal or Ko-fi. We hope you'll listen again next week. Bye.